Section 4 of The Year When Stardust Fell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Year When Stardust Fell by Raymond F. Jones. Chapter 4 Disaster Spreads. While he stood, shocked by his mother's statement, Ken heard the phone ringing in the next room. On battery power at the telephone central office, he thought. His mother answered, and there was a pause. Professor Maddox is at the college, she said. You can probably reach him there, or I can give him your message when he comes home. She returned to the doorway. That was the power company. They want your father and Dr. Douglas to have a look at their generators. Ken, what do you think this means? She asked worriedly. What will happen if all our power goes off and doesn't come back on? Do you think your father has any idea what's causing the trouble? Ken shook his head. I don't know, Mom. So far, nobody seems to know anything. In less than 15 minutes, Professor Maddox hurried into the house. Couldn't get my car going, he said. It's stalled on the campus parking lot. The power company wants me to go to Collins Dam. I know, said Mrs. Maddox. They called here. He paused a moment, staring out the window, a look of bewilderment on his face. This thing seems to be more serious than I would have believed possible. There's just no explanation for it. None at all. Any chance of my going along, Dad? Ken said. I'm afraid not. We're going in Dr. Larson's car, and it's half-loaded with instruments. I hope we can make it there and back without breaking down. I'll probably be back early this evening, but don't hold dinner on my account. Well, there will only be sandwiches, said Ken's mother. I can't cook anything. Of course. Just leave me some of whatever you have. From the doorway, Ken watched his father and the other two scientists. He thought he detected a loginess in the engine as Professor Larson drove away from the curb. What they hoped to accomplish, Ken didn't know, but he felt certain they would find the same thing in the generators that had been found in the automobile engines. The bearings were probably frozen so tight that they and the shaft had become one solid piece of metal. He hoped the scientists would bring back some samples of the metal. By four o'clock, all the members of the science club had arrived. They met in what Ken called his science shack, a small building next to the observatory. Here he kept the amateur radio equipment belonging to the club and his own personal collection in the several different fields in which he had been interested in since his Boy Scout days. In each of his companions, Ken could see the effect of the feeling that now pervaded the town. Their usual horseplay was almost forgotten, and their faces were sober to the point of fear. "'We aren't going to be able to run our blower by electricity,' said Joe Walton. "'We can't even get power for the precipitating filters.' "'Let's scrounge anything we can that runs on gasoline or coal oil,' said Al Miner. "'If we act fast, we ought to be able to pick up some old motorcycle engines or some power lawnmowers from the dump.' Thompson's have probably got some. We can try some people's basements, too. Let's get as many as possible, because we don't know how long any one will last, and we may have to run the blower for weeks in order to get any kind of sample. Good idea, said Ken. Here's something else. Who's got a car left to gather this stuff in? The boys looked at each other. Ours was running till this morning, Frank Abrams said, but I won't guarantee how long we can count on it. Pretty soon there won't be anything we can count on. We've got to get a horse and wagon before they start selling for as much as a new Cadillac used to. My uncle's got one on his farm, Dave Whitaker said. He'd probably loan it to me, but he's five miles out of town. Take my bike, said Ken. See if he'll let you borrow it and a wagon at least a couple of weeks or longer. Bring some bales of hay, too. Right now? Right now. When Dave had gone, Al said, What about the blower? Anybody know where we can get one of those? I think there's one at Thompson's, said Ted. They pulled it out of Pete and Mary's restaurant when they remodeled. Well, that would be just a little kitchen blower. Not big enough. We need a man-sized one. Ken said after a long pause. Well, there isn't one in town. The chances of getting one from somewhere else are practically zero. Frederick is 50 miles away, and by tomorrow there may not be a car in town that would go that far. Look, 
said Al. How about the air conditioning systems in town? There isn't one that's any good where it is now. Both the high school and the college have big ones. I bet we could get permission at either place to revamp the intake and outlet ducts so we could put in our filters and precipitators. Your father and his friends could swing it for us at the college. You might be right. It's worth trying. For precipitators, we can rig a battery-powered system that will put a few thousand volts on the screens. Art will let us have enough car batteries for that. I think we're set. Dave Whitaker did not return until dusk, but he had succeeded in getting the horse and wagon and a load of hay. He deposited this in his own yard before driving back to Ken's place. During the next two or three hours, the boys found two old motorcycle engines, a power lawn mower motor, and one old gasoline-powered washing machine. All of these they took down to Art Matthews' place and begged him for space and tools to overhaul the equipment. You can have the whole joint, Art said dejectedly. This pile of junk will never move. He waved a hand at the cars lined up and down both sides of the streets near his place. By nine o'clock they had succeeded in getting all the small engines running, but they dared not test them too long, hoping to conserve all possible life that might be left. When they were through, they returned to Ken's house. Mrs. Maddox had sandwiches ready for them. No word had been heard from the three scientists who had gone to the power plant. Maria called, anxious about her father. I'm worried, Ken, she said. What would happen to them out there if the car breaks down and they have no place to go? They'll be all right, Ken reassured her. They probably found something bigger than they expected at the dam. If they should have trouble with the car, they can find a phone along the road at some farmhouse and let us know. I can't help worrying, said Maria. Everything feels so strange tonight, just the way it does before a big thunderstorm, as if something terrible were going to happen. Ken sensed the way she felt. It was all he could do to hold back the same reaction within himself. But he knew it must be far more difficult for Maria, being in a foreign country among strangers with customs she didn't understand. Why don't you and your mother come over here until they get back? she asked. Well, suppose they don't come back at all. Tonight, I mean. Then you can sleep here. Mom's got plenty of room. I'll ask Mama. If it's all right with her, we'll be right over. Ken hoped they would come. He found himself concerned beyond all reason that Maria and her mother should be made comfortable and relieved of their worries. He went out to the backyard again, where all the other members of the club were still lounging on the grass watching the sky. The comet was twenty degrees above the horizon, although the sun had long since set below the western mountains. No one seemed to feel this was a night for sleeping. "'Let's try your battery portable for a few minutes,' said Joe Walton. "'I'd like to know what's going on in the rest of the world.' Ken brought it out and turned it on. The local station was off the air, of course, and so was the one in Frederick. Half the power there came from the Collins Dam. More than one-third of the usual stations were missing. But Ken finally picked up one coming in clearly from the northern tip of the state. The announcer didn't sound like an announcer. He sounded like an ordinary man in the midst of a great and personal tragedy. Over three-fourths of the cars in the United States, he was saying, are now estimated to be out of commission. The truck transportation system of the country has all but broken down. The railroads have likewise suffered from this unbelievable phenomenon. All machinery which involves rolling or sliding contact between metal parts has been more or less affected. Those equipped with roller bearings are holding up longer than those equipped with bushings, but all are gradually failing. In New York City, half the power capacity has gone out of commission. Some emergency units have been thrown into operation, but these cannot carry the load, and even some of them have failed. Elsewhere across the nation, the story is similar. In Chicago, Kansas City, St. Louis, Washington, San Francisco, the power systems are breaking down along with motor and rail transportation. For some hours now, the president and his cabinet have been in session with dozens of scientific leaders trying to find an explanation and a cure for this disastrous failure of machinery. 
Rumors which were broadcast widely this morning concerning possible effects of the comet have been thoroughly discredited by these scientists who call them superstitions belonging back in the Middle Ages. One final report has just come over the air by short wave. In the Atlantic Ocean, the Italian steamer White Bird has radioed frantically that her engines are dead. Over 800 passengers and crew are aboard. All ship sailings have been canceled since noon today. Vessels at sea are returning to nearest port. There is no ship available which can take off the stranded passengers and crew of the White Bird. She floats helpless and alone tonight in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. As a power conservation measure, broadcasting on this network will cease until midnight, Eastern Standard Time. Turn your radios off. Keep all unnecessary lights off. Avoid consumption of power in every possible way. Be with us again at midnight for the latest news and information. There was a restlessness in all of Mayfield. None of the townspeople felt like sleeping that night. Ken's group watched the comet until it disappeared below the horizon. Some of them observed it through the telescope. On either side of the Maddox's yard, the voices of neighbors could be heard under the night sky, speaking in hushed tones of the thing that had happened. Maria and Mrs. Larson arrived, and Maria joined Ken and his friends in the backyard. He told her what they had heard on the radio. That ship, Maria said slowly, the white bird out there alone in the ocean. What will become of those people? Ken shook his head slowly. There's no way to get to them. There's not a thing that can be done. Nothing at all. They remained quiet for a long time as if each were thinking his own thoughts about the mystery and loneliness and death riding the forsaken ship in the middle of the ocean, and how soon it might be that the same dark shadow settled over the cities and towns. Maria thought of her far-off homeland, and the people she knew, suddenly frightened and helpless in their inability to get power and food. Ken thought of the scenes that must be occurring in the big cities of the United States. People everywhere would not be sleeping tonight. They were all citizens of a civilization that was dependent for its life on the turning wheels and on power surging through bright wires across hundreds of miles of open country. Without those turning wheels and the power in those wires, there was no food. There was no warmth. There was no life. They listened to the radio again at midnight. There was little that was new. The President's Council had found no solution, nor had they come to any decisions. Scattered riots and public disorders were springing up, both in Europe and America. On the high seas, the captain of the White Bird was begging for assistance, demanding to know what had happened that no ship could be sent to his aid. Word finally came from Ken's father and his companions that their car failed after leaving the dam to return home. They had reached a farmhouse where they would spend the rest of the night. They would try to find some kind of transportation in the morning. In the early morning hours, Ken's friends drifted away, one by one, to their own homes, and as dawn approached, Ken finally went up to his own room and slept. Maria and her mother, with Ken's mother, had retired only a short time earlier. When he awoke at nine o'clock, Ken had no idea whether or not the school officials planned to hold classes that day. But he felt that for himself and for the other members of the science club, there would be no return to normal activity for a long time. Since his father would not return for an indefinite time, Ken determined to approach President Lewis of the college regarding the use of the idle blower and ventilation ducts in the science hall. He had met President Lewis a number of times and believed that the president would listen to him. Another matter had disturbed Ken since last night. As soon as he was awake, he called the office of Mayor Hilliard. The mayor's secretary answered and said, Mayor Hilliard is in conference. He'll not be available today. Ken hesitated. Tell him it is the Maddox residence calling. I think Mayor Hilliard will answer. In a moment, the mayor's voice boomed on the phone. Normally hearty, it was now weighted with overtones of uncertainty and fear. Uh, Professor Maddox, I was just about to call you. Would you... 
This is not Professor Maddox, said Ken. This is his son, Kenneth. My secretary said, the mayor sounded angry now, although he knew Ken well. I didn't say my father was calling, said Ken. I've got something to say that I think you'll want to hear, and it will only take a minute. All right, go ahead. In a day or two, the entire town is going to be without power, transportation, or communication with the outside world. The science club of the high school has a 1,000-watt amateur transmitter that can reach any point in the United States and most foreign countries. It requires power. We can operate from batteries, and I would like to ask you to authorize that all automobile batteries and those belonging to the telephone company be immediately seized by the city and placed in official custody to be used for emergency communication purposes only. They should be drained of electrolyte and properly stored. I appreciate that suggestion, the mayor said. I think it's a good one. Would you boys be able to take care of that? We'd be glad to. Well, it's your assignment, then. We are calling a town meeting tonight in the college auditorium. We especially want your father to be there if he can, and we'll issue orders for the battery conservation program at that time. By noon, Ken had gained an interview with President Lewis and received permission for his group to make use of the largest blower on the campus for their air sampling project. They loaded their tools and themselves into the ancient wagon belonging to Dave Whitaker's uncle and spent the rest of the day working at Science Hall. Ken's father called again to report they had succeeded in renting a horse and buggy at an exorbitant price from a farmer. When told of the town meeting that evening, he promised to try and reach Mayfield in time. Ten minutes before the eight o'clock deadline, Professor Maddox drew up in front of the house. He called to Ken without even getting down from the seat of the wagon. Get your mother, and let's go. Mrs. Maddox appeared, worried and concerned. You've had nothing to eat, she protested. At least come in and have a sandwich and a glass of milk. It's not cold, but it's fresh. No, Professor Maddox shook his head. We don't want to miss any of the meeting. Get a coat and come along. It'll be chilly later. Maria and her mother came also. The small wagon was loaded to capacity as it moved slowly up the hill toward the campus. People were streaming toward the auditorium from all directions. Most of them were afoot. A few others had found a horse and wagon. A dozen or two cars chugged protestingly up the hill, but it appeared that most of these would not be operating another 24 hours. As they approached the hall, Professor Maddox chuckled and pointed a finger ahead of them. Look there. I'm sure that every citizen of Mayfield is present or accounted for now. Ken glanced in the direction of his father's gesture. The creaky wagon of Granny Wicks was drawn slowly along by her emaciated horse. Granny's stick-thin body jounced harshly on the rough seat. Ken fought against a ridiculous uneasiness as he recognized her. He knew his father had not heard Granny's speech on the post office steps, but he was a little surprised when his father said, I'm afraid Granny Wicks, with her profound knowledge of omens and signs, is about as much an authority on the matter as any of the rest of us here tonight. End of section 4. This was recorded by Mr. Mike 79, Lowell, Michigan, United States of America. Mike's Voice for Hire.com.